So I thought I would start this morning by reading the verses that we have been reading to kind of center ourselves for this six-week study that we've been doing. At the very end of Luke, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples for the final time. And in that final time that he is talking to them, here's what he says. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are the witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay into the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he rises from the dead. So what we've been doing for the last six weeks is going through the prophecies of Jesus that are found in the law the prophets, and the writings. Uh, the Psalms is sort of a key, it's one of the writings. So I thought I'd just reaffirm a little bit this morning that we have in the, in the Hebrew Bible, they had three great divisions. The law, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, everything from Isaiah to Malachi, and the writings, which is everything else, okay? And they didn't really have the same take as we have on these divisions. And so, for example, Daniel is found in the Jewish Bible in the writings. They didn't consider Daniel a prophet, but they considered him a wise man. Uh, whereas uh, Luther and Calvin shifted it into the prophets. Now, in the prophets, we have two main categories that can confuse us uh, because we have what are called the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, that's everybody else. Now, when you use the word major, you might think that meant more important, but that's not what it means. It means longer. If you take out your Bibles this afternoon when you get home, you'll notice that Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are long books, 65 chapters, 52 chapters. I forget what the Ezekiel is, 50-some chapters, so that they're longer. But they're no more inspired. They're not more important to the church. In fact, if we uh, went to the Acts, which occurs just a few weeks after the end of Luke, we find immediately uh, Peter in his first great sermon is quoting from Joel. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, and I will pour out my spirit upon you in the last days. Uh, so that uh, that particular prophecy, for example, was extremely important to the early church. Why did I go into all this? Well, we really cannot, in, as I've said before, we, we cannot in six weeks and in two weeks on the prophets, we can't possibly go into all of the prophetic verses. In fact, some of what you may think are your favorite prophetic verses, uh, we, we aren't going to cover at all. Uh, and I've largely, uh, only one, I've, I've largely ignored the Christmas verses that we covered during Christmas time. Uh, but there are innumerable verses in the Old Testament that relate to the birth of the Messiah. So for the next two weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at the prophecies of Jesus as they are found in the prophets and mostly from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, so I think I'm going to stop there and say, I've already told you that there's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. These are the major prophets. But I think almost universally, maybe even universally, scholars rank Isaiah at the top. Why? Well, first of all, he's an exceedingly beautiful writer. Uh, so that the poetry in Isaiah is fabulous. And so from just strictly a literary standpoint, the book is maybe the greatest of all the writings in the Old Testament if you just look at for literary value. But secondly, uh, from the very beginning, 
the, the prophecies of Isaiah of the coming of the Messiah, both of his birth and of his character, have been central to the understanding of the church. So that this book has been read uh, by more people than any other book in Scripture. Um, one of the things I'll, I'll just tell you, for example, um, uh, Augustine, after he was converted to Christ, found Isaiah to be the most important book of the Old Testament for him. I, I don't know if I've said this yet, but whenever I'm discouraged, uh, I read Isaiah because Isaiah has some of the most encouraging um, uh, sections of prophecy about the final goodness of God, the final answer of God to his people's prayers, uh, to his care for his people, and, and for his willingness to sacrifice for his people. So to me, Isaiah is one of the most uplifting uh, of all of the books in, in Holy Scripture and, and is a good book to read when you're in trouble. Now, one last principle. I tell, every week I try to give you a principle that I think will help you. Um, as the church has read Christ into the prophets or in the prophets, so that we don't read the prophets necessarily to gain exact information about what date the Assyrians attacked Israel, uh, although scholars spend endless amount of ink on that, um, or what particular period of history a particular prophecy relates to. Once again, scholars spend endless amounts of ink trying to discern the exact dates and times of various parts of the prophets. Uh, that's an interesting inquiry, but it's not central to the church, if I can say. What is central to the church is the prophets saw the character of Jesus hundreds of years before his birth, and that these prophecies uh, tell us something important about the character of Jesus. So I think that helps our faith. I'll just alert you to this. Uh, when you go to seminary, and Bob, Ron, and I all went to a, a liberal seminary, um, you, will be, you will spend endless hours <clears throat> on the subject matter of how many Isaiahs were there and how many redactors were there in Jeremiah, how many people actually participated in the writing. And I used to just say, I finally said in class one day, I really don't care if Franklin Delano Roosevelt wrote this book. Uh, it's about Jesus. Uh, uh, these scholarly discussions are not central to our Christian faith. And they should not in any way damage our Christian faith because we're interested in Christ in the prophets. We're not necessarily interested in what redactor wrote what sentence in what book. Uh, and, and, and if God can inspire one man, he can inspire a hundred men. Uh, so it doesn't matter how many writers there were. Uh, God can inspire who God wants to inspire. Uh, which gets me to the last part of this that I kind of wanted to spend some time on before we launch into the study for the week. And that is, what is a prophet? What is a prophet? Because we, in retrospect, because we spent a lot of time, as we will today, talking about the fulfillment of prophecies in Christ, like sometimes to think of the word prophet as meaning one who foresees the future, okay? Now, that is a part of what it means to be a prophet, and the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers all agreed in that, okay? But the word itself and the function itself means one who announces the word of God to the people. So it's more than just the future, it's the present, in fact, as you read the prophets, you will find that although Isaiah does foretell the future, and although Jeremiah in particular is warning the people that there's a future destruction of Jerusalem for their sins, uh, they're announcing the judgment of God on the people of God so that they might repent and not suffer that judgment. Does that make some sense? Uh, so that it's the word of God that sits first and the future that sits second. Does that, that make sense to you all? You all know you can disagree with me. That's fine. Uh, and you can ask questions. Um, so that we need to recognize that the prophet is announcing the word of God in the future. So now I want to go, finally. Um, okay, so I'm going to... Isaiah 51, for example, says this. 
I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth and who says to Zion, you are my people. Jeremiah says, then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth. And he said to me, I have put your wor my words in your mouth. So that can you see that the idea is that God is touching the prophet. Sometimes even visibly like with a hot coal. <laughs> God is touching the prophet and the word of God is coming from the prophet to the people of God so that they might know God's will and respond to it. Or I might add, as we shall learn in just a moment, not respond to it and suffer the consequences. Uh, because one of the most famous of the prophecies Jesus uses in just that way. All right, so let's go to the New Testament now. Uh, we're going to go to 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21. If somebody gets that before I do, you can read it. Second Peter 1, 19 to 21. Anybody got it? That's not in the reading for the week, by the way, so you won't get it in the reading for the week. Did anybody get it before me? So Peter then, now he's writing, let's just say, this letter in roughly 60 A.D. All right, so he's writing this 500 years after Isaiah. More. He said, he says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning stars arises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but spoken from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's a phrase I really like. Uh, 2 Peter 1, 19 and 20. So several things uh, to remember about our study today from this, which is this. First of all, at this time, the New Testament canon doesn't exist. It's being written. Okay, and, and I might add, the writers, I don't think, know they're writing the New Testament. They're just writing letters to people, okay? Uh, so the, the scriptures to which Peter refers to are all Old Testament scriptures. That's to the Jews, that's the scripture in 60 AD. So he's saying to them that we have this prophetic word. We have this word of God that is like a light that shines into the darkness. Now, what does light do? It illumines the world, right? If you don't know where you're going and the light begins to shine, you can see the path, okay? If you're confused as to your directions and the light suddenly shines, you can see your directions and now you know how to get where you're going. Uh, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And Peter is referring, I think here, to the fact that the prophets saw beforehand that light that was fully revealed in Christ and that they spoke as the Holy Spirit inspired them uh, so that they spoke forth that word that we might have encouragement in Christ, that Christ is the light of the world and does fulfill the yearnings of the people of Israel for a Messiah. Okay? Uh, so I, I'd say that because the best way to read the prophets is first as an announcement of God's will and secondly as a prophet of the future, if I can hold that. Because the original readers, I think, read it primarily as an announcement of God's will. God wants us to know him. He wants us to receive the light of his wisdom. And in Christ, he did just that. So that that announcement that they're making is that if we trust in Christ, we will be able to find our ways in a dark world. Okay. With that, someone turn, if you will... Um, oh, one last thing. Um, we're going to be in Isaiah almost entirely in the next two weeks. 
But there are prophecies of Jesus in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Micah, Zechariah, Malachi, and others. So that you need to know that there's a huge volume of prophecies that we believe to be fulfilled in Christ found in the prophets, major and minor. Uh, numerous uh, numbers of them. Uh, we just can't cover in two weeks all of those week by week. Um, so, one last little introduction just to Isaiah. The name Isaiah means the Lord is our salvation. The name means the Lord is our salvation. So that the prophet Isaiah is primarily a prophecy of God's salvation for his people. Remember I said it was encouraging in the end even though it was, well, what's, what could be more encouraging than salvation, right? <laughs> uh, so that the reason he is so read and so encouraging and the reason we find so many references to Christ in him is because his announcement is primarily an announcement of God's salvation of God's people. And that means us, among other things. So with that, um, I'd like it, if we will, uh, to somebody turn to the first of the ones for the week, which is Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, and you'll find it is the first one in week 5 if you've got your little brochure. Somebody have it for me to read? Okay, now someone else go to Matthew 13, 13 through 15 and read that to us. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this So uh, this is a most interesting word of Jesus. It occurs right after the parable of the three soils. You remember the thorny soil, the rocky soil? It occurs right after that, and the, the, the disciples don't know what Jesus is talking about. Okay, and so they ask him, uh, why don't you speak more plainly? And Jesus responds to that by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes this very difficult and hard to understand prophecy because the prophecy is that these people have such hard hearts that they will never understand what I'm about. They will not understand what I'm doing uh, and they will never turn from their wicked ways. So who is he talking about primarily? The Jews, the Pharisees. He's primarily talking about the most educated the most literary and the most dedicated Jews that exist. One of the interesting parts of Jesus' ministry is the Sadducees actually were far less religious than the Pharisees were. And Jesus does condemn them, but he spends a whole bunch of time condemning the Pharisees over and over again as if these people were the worst because they seemed to be so religious, but in the hearts they weren't. In other words, they were the Presbyterians of the Old Testament. <laughs> we Presbyterians need to listen to this carefully. Let's just ask, them, how many of us have read our Bibles with a hard heart, not wanting to hear what Jesus wanted to tell us in the Scripture? How many of us have done, played that little game? I've played the little game uh, where I have read the Scriptures. God is clearly speaking to me to avoid a course of action or to do something that He wants me to do. And either because I'm lazy or because I'm twisted or because I don't want to, uh, I do just the opposite. Okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I think you can be, even be assemblies of God and that happens to you. So that it's a warning. Yes? 
to become a real, true Christian immediately. Immediately. And we know that that has to be a true word from God because we're told in scriptures to pray for those in authority. And we're not told to pray for those in authority we like. I, I, wish, that had, I wish that qualifier was in there, but it, it's not. <laughs> you know, uh, one of my verses this morning was that all things, this is not possible for human beings, but all things are possible for God. It's good to hold on to that fact that we... We of our own power cannot do much of anything, really. Many things are impossible for us, but everything is possible for God. Now, since I tell myself this all the time, since a, a single day is, a thousand years is as a single day to God, we have to remember that his timing may not be what we approve of. Uh, God's salvation of America may be a long way away, hundreds of years away, and we may just have to live with that uh, because a single day, a thousand years is as a single day in his sight. Well, we start there because I think it is important for us to understand that we too have hard hearts. We too don't want to do the hard work of understanding God's will for our lives. We too sometimes don't want to hear the message that God has for us and we too can miss God's will, just like the ancient Jews did. We're not in a privileged position, okay? So that uh, we need to hear, this, hear these words afresh, uh, that uh, sometimes understanding the word of God is work. You know, the uh, Proverbs begins with, uh, I will give you the wisdom that you may understand parables as if the wise men of Israel knew that not all parables were obvious <laughs> and that therefore sometimes it takes wisdom to understand them. Okay, well, we've done that one. Let's go to day two. Um, the, somebody read for us Isaiah 8, 14, and if, while they're doing that, somebody read 1 Peter 2, 7, and 8. This is important. This one's important. In fact, thank you. See, Sean, I believe that... Well, no, that's not it. We don't have it. Okay. Hmm? And somebody now pick up the first Peter 2, 7 and 8. Okay, um, this particular prophecy appears in Isaiah and it is repeated in the New Testament in Acts, in 1 Peter, and in other books in the New Testament. In other words, it must be of some importance or it wouldn't have been repeated so often. So if you're, a first, if you're Peter, if you're a first century Jew that's become a Christian, what is your big question? What is the biggest question that you might have about the faith? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the Messiah? Is he the one we studied about? And if he is, why is it that God's people reject him? Why is it that he wasn't universally accepted as the Messiah? That would be the question you would ask if you were a Jew is if he's really the Messiah, why is the vast majority of my people reject this person as the Messiah? There's the question that the church had to grapple with. And they looked back to this prophecy as giving an answer to that question. And the answer is because the Messiah is not just one who fulfills all of God's purposes for Israel, but because of the way in which he fulfills those prophecies, he's like a big stumbling block that sits right in the middle of the road to salvation. That you can either be saved through this rock or you can stumble over it. So why is that? So I think we, what's the first reason that the Jews really have a trouble with Jesus as the Messiah? Hmm? 
They thought they were going to get a soldier. They thought they were going to get David. They thought they were going to get somebody who would come in and he would destroy the Roman Empire and he would establish Israel and then he would rule this reestablished kingdom of God on earth for a, forever. And the, Jewish pe the suffering of the Jewish people would now be over. And that's not what he did. Okay? Now, we all, I, I, whenever I teach, I teach on this one. But this week, uh, God brought another fact to mind because it's not just that he didn't do what the Jews expected him to do. He didn't teach what the Jews expected him to teach. He didn't say, follow these ten laws and you'll be great. He didn't say, do these sacrifices on the Temple Mountain and your sins will be forgiven. So he didn't teach what the average Jew expected and wanted him to teach. And so they had trouble accepting this could be the Messiah. Yeah. He didn't validate them. He didn't validate them. Thank you. That was an inspired statement. <laughs> because in a way, do we do the same thing? You know, if I, 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 I've already probably told you this. When I'm working, and I don't work very much anymore, but I, I, in, in law, all I did was work with troubled businesses. And then I got into the church and God said, well, thank you for being so talented at this because all, all I'm going to ever give you is troubled churches. <laughs> uh, and so I would sit in my office and I would write the problems on one side of a legal pad and I would start drawing lines and I'd write Bible verses and things on the other side of the line to try to figure out, well, how do I solve this problem? And sometimes... The solution is one that I didn't want to hear. That I, so I would continue to draw more lines and write down more, hoping against hope that the message from God wouldn't be what I thought it was. Uh, and until finally you sort of drop all your defenses and do whatever it is God wants you to do. Well, we all of us, I think, sometimes want the Jesus we want. Uh, for example, uh, and I'm a pretty conservative Christian, both religiously and politically, we want God to validate the United States of America and our freedoms. But God is the God of all the nations of the earth. He loves all nations equally. He doesn't love us more than he loves communist China. He doesn't love the people of America more than he loves the people of Soviet Russia. Uh, he, he doesn't, God loves everybody. And he's got a whole world to make work. <laughs> uh, so that uh, often he puts us in positions we would rather not be in. And things happen that we would rather not happen. Uh, and the Jews could not accept that. And then there's the hardest thing of all. I've said this to you. What, in your opinion, is the hardest thing about the Christian faith? Equality. Equality? Because That's a So I think to put it, and the consequence, we would prefer to love the people that we think we should love and hate the people that we think we should hate, right? So these words, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, this is a message we don't want to naturally hear. It's not a message that, that flips off, oh, this is a great idea. Uh, the message that we should suffer for those who are persecuting us and trying to hurt us. And we should try to help them and love them and try to redeem them. That's a message none of us want to hear, right? I don't want to hear it. Uh, and yet, isn't that the message of Jesus? So Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews, but let us not for a moment think he can't be a stumbling block to us too. We can all stumble over the real Jesus, so to speak, and refuse to follow him where he wants us to go. Uh, and end up in a place we don't want to be at. Okay, so um, let's now go to day three. This is the one prophecy of the birth that I put in this week. 
Uh, so somebody read Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, and then um, Matthew 4, 12 through 17. So I'm so glad Bob put this up here. So in the time of Jesus, this map, this is not, this is the map, but it would have been true Isaiah for what my purposes. So this is Capernaum right here, okay, and it sits right on the northern, northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. And this is what is called Galilee of the Gentiles, okay? Now this... Right here is Samaria. So if you will remember, when the northern kingdom broke off, all that was really left of the kingdom of David is this little area around Jerusalem, Judah. But all of the territories that had been given to all of the other of the ten tribes went, left the kingdom of Solomon and formed their own kingdom of Israel. And so this little land here, uh, we get south of Hebron, and this land over here, which was to the sons of Joseph, and all of this land up in here, all of that was part of the northern kingdom. Okay? And the northern kingdom falls in around the year 731 B.C. or something like that uh, to the Assyrians. So that this land here is paganized almost from the beginning of their formation. Uh, the, the story of the woman at the well, uh, Jesus, she's, they worship on Mount Gerizim and they had a golden calf on Mount Gerizim. So you can imagine how the Jews felt about uh, people worshiping a golden calf on a mountain. Uh, that reflects back to a bad incident in their history. Uh, uh, and then the Syrians took them over and the Syrians were a particularly terrible people because what they did with conquering people is they forcibly intermarried them and took them out of their land so that they could have no national identity. They were trying to create a homogenous empire so that they forcibly uh, paganized uh, what is now the West Bank and what was then Samaria. So there are two darknesses here. What's the first darkness? I've, I've pretty much told you. The first darkness is cap captivity. The, the first darkness is this is a captive area of Israel. And the second is it's a primarily pagan area of Israel. So when Jesus takes the disciples up here, let's see, where is it? This is, it's, this is basically Caesarea Philippi. When he takes them up there and asks the question, who do people say that I am? Interestingly enough, they're sitting up there at Caesarea Philippi where it's the, the seat of the god, is the god of Pan, of the Roman saying. They're sitting with all these pagan temples around them. There's ruins of all these pagan temples up there, Juno, Pan, etc., Bacchus. Uh, and so when he asks the question, who do people say that I am, it's in this context of the darkness of a pagan religion. Uh, 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 of the confusion of the ancient world. So the people of this area, not only to the Jews that live in Jerusalem, live in a physical darkness of captivity through their history. They live in a spiritual darkness of pagan religious rites in their history. And that's where Jesus goes. That, that's where Jesus goes to begin his ministry. So let's talk about expectations. 
If you were a typical Jew, let's say you're a Pharisee, or let's say you come from a very wealthy family of Sadducees and aligned uh, with the high priest family, where would you think the son of David might be born and go? Jerusalem, right? Where else would the Messiah be born and go? He's the son of David. If he was going to get born somewhere, he ought to get born down here, and he ought to live in Jerusalem, and he ought to reestablish the kingdom of David the way it was and the way we've always dreamed it of being. And instead of doing that, Jesus goes to this area. I, I can't think of, y'all, I don't know Texas as well. Like, what's the worst place a Texan could be born? Oklahoma. Oklahoma. <laughs> That's a great, perfect, perfect. So we're all down here in Austin, and we're praying for the reincarnation of Stephen F. Austin, who will establish the kingdom of Texas, and we'll all be free of our slavery to the United States of America. And this guy from Oklahoma comes and starts preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's, that's a great, thank you so much. That was perfect. <laughs> I am going to use that one again. Where I grew up, it would have been the hillbillies because everybody thought you know, the hillbillies and the Ozarks, that was a terrible place to be born. They were all. Uh, so that Jesus ends up beginning in a place of spiritual darkness, in a place of oppression, in a place of historic captivity, and that's where he decides to begin his ministry. Not in the place where we would expect at all if we were a religious Jew to do it. But of course, if you read the prophets rightly, you sort of get that there was a purpose in the madness, <laughs> that he did that deliberately, that he might bring the kingdom of God. Now, the second part of this little prophecy is, so when he leaves, goes to Zebulun, or Capernaum, I'll, I'll now start using the right words for it, when he goes to that area and begins to preach, what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, he doesn't say, grab your swords, the kingdom of God is at hand. He doesn't say, follow me with your chariots and with your armor, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, repent. So how many of us really like to hear that word? It applies to everyone, yeah. I love to tell this story that Kathy and I went through a very difficult period of time uh, right after I really got my first church. It was a very difficult time. Kathy was miserable in this little tiny town of Brownsville, Tennessee. Uh, two of our children were just busy revolting. The term PK was written for our two oldest children. And, uh, it's, and then one of them had to go into a rehab. And so Kathy has now got six children, uh, well, not six children, Two, usually one or two other children living in our home, plus a child. Which, for those of you who are women, what does having four children plus one that's not even yours living in your home equal? Chaos, Chaos and exhaustion, right? Uh, well, I had this habit, I'm the pastor, so I have this habit of I go away once a month and I pray. And I go to this beautiful little retreat, Episcopal Retreat Center near Memphis, and I sit with the priest and I pray. And I'm, I, I start this prayer, and the prayer goes something like this. Oh, Lord, please forgive Kathy for her many sins against me, <laughs> which are many and voluminous. And all of a sudden, as clearly as I can say, God says to me, you idiot. <laughs> you jerk. <laughs> and um, so his message to me wasn't really what I wanted to hear. Oh, yes, I'll t don't worry about it. I'll take Kathy in hand, and we'll convict her, and she'll change. He really said, no, why don't you change? Why don't you change the way you are and let Kathy stay the way she is because she's trying to keep all these kids fed and clothed and in school and relatively happy. God often strikes us where we don't want to get struck, doesn't he? And when God strikes us where we don't want to get struck of our own sin, our own shortcomings, our own failures, uh, our first inclination is usually not to repent, right? It's, it's usually, my, at least I'm strong-willed. I'm a strong-willed child, like my two eldest children. My tendency is to keep going and prove that I'm right. <laughs> uh, and uh, Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. Turn and repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, 
Uh, I wanted to say one last thing about this because it connects to the Gospel of John. Remember that Nefalti and Zebulun were places of darkness to the Jews. John especially plays on this theme because who is Jesus? He's the light of the world. So the message is into this darkness of religious paganism, into this darkness of false teaching, into this darkness of Roman oppression. And that, this land up here, it, it had been since it was conquered by everybody. Everybody. It was always in captivity. It never had any form of freedom at all in Jewish history uh, from the time the Assyrians, because the Assyrians took them over, then the Babylonians took them over, then the Medo-Persians took them over, then the Greeks took them over, and then the Romans took them over. They were a place of slavery. But into that darkness, the light of Christ shines. Okay. Any questions about that one? How are we doing? Where are we? We're a little time. I'm so glad God It's just too bad he didn't say repent and be baptized. <laughs> um, all right. So, this one is a hard one, I decided. Uh, someone read Isaiah eleven ten and John 12, 18 through 21. Isaiah eleven ten and John... 12, 18 through 21. We would like to see Jesus. Okay, so here's another little stump. So I'm a, I'm a Jew. I'm from a fine Jewish family. I'm a Pharisee. Who does the Messiah come to save? Me. Me, right? And so the Jews are not looking for a Gentile Savior. They're looking for a Jewish Savior, right? So this, this is the context that the Jews don't read the Old Testament they do read the Old Testament that the reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel will show the rest of the fallen nations what it's really like to be the people of God. But they don't read it that the rest of the world is going to be part of the people of God. That they don't read it. They don't read it that way. So this prophecy from Isaiah is that on that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people and the nations will rally to him. Okay? Now, you could re that can be interpreted more than one way. What happens when Jesus comes? This little incident here, because in Jerusalem at the festivals, you would have Greeks as well as Jews present. And so now some Greeks want to meet Jesus. They want to be find out if he's the Messiah. They want to maybe follow him. So does anybody know what's the biggest problem that first century church had. What's the biggest problem? Does anybody know? That's right. The biggest problem we find in the book of Acts, they have to have the first great conference of the apostles to solve the problem, is that when Paul goes out into the Gentile world, all the men here, what one thing do you suppose no adult male wants to do? Right. <laughs> right. So, the Jews want everybody to get circumcised and everybody to fall, follow the Jewish dietary laws, everybody to become Jews, and then in addition they can become Christians. That's, and that's not a stupid way of reading the scriptures, by the way. It's not right, but it's not stupid. There's a lot of scriptures that would make you think that's right. Paul begins to preach to the Gentiles a non-Jewish gospel, and this causes a huge problem. Because the Jewish believers, even people like Peter, who is the first person ever to convert a Gentile, 
has a hard time, we learn from Galatians, in accepting that this could be true. Uh, but they do eventually realize that Christ is not just for the Jews, He's for the nations. He's for everybody. And that means there will be a missionary movement, by the way. That means there will be a great commission. That means that Jesus will say, as He says in the verse of Acts, you will be my witnesses to all peoples. Uh, uh, because in order for Christ to be the Christ of the nations, it's going to have to leave Israel. It's going to have to leave the Jewish community. Uh, in fact, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, at the end of his life, says it's, it really has to leave the church, too, <laughs> in order for that to happen. Uh, it has to go out there with people. Uh, I don't think he's right about that, by the way. The, the church is the people, but that's, not, not, that's another story. All right. Uh, so... We know from this one that Jesus is going to be unexpected in so many ways. So many ways. And another one of the ways he's unexpected is it's not just going to be for the Jews. It's going to be for everybody. Okay. Um, now, day five, somebody read Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. And then somebody read Matthew 11, 2 through 6. And the Matthew text. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, who came his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not. So this one's very important prophecy because in this one, Jesus himself is saying to John, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. So the context is John's in prison. You know, he's already baptized Jesus. He already knows there's something special about Jesus. He's even indicated he believes Jesus to be the Messiah. Uh, in, in all four of the Gospels, he allows his followers to follow Jesus. But now he's in prison, now he's about to die, and he's being persecuted, and he's in uncomfortable circumstances. And of course, he might be wondering, why doesn't this Messiah guy come and get me out of here? Right? <laughs> why am I still where I am? Uh, and so he sends his disciples off to see Jesus, and Jesus gives him this word of assurance. He says, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind will, will receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is everyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, that rock, that, that rock. So um, here's kind of what Jesus is saying. John, remember what's going on. Remember what you and your disciples have seen. In fact, I'm healing the sick. In fact, the lame are walking. In fact, the blind see. In fact, there are mighty signs of God's power being done here. So in your circumstances, remember that. Does he say, oh, P.S., I'm going to come get you out tonight? Mm -hmm. he, he doesn't say that. I really wish he had said that and then done it. That would be a great thing to hold on to in our lives. So does God always get us out of our circumstances when we're in some kind of a prison? Maybe it's a relationship that's gone bad. Maybe it's a career that's not going well. Maybe it's a situation in our neighborhood or community we don't like. Does God always get us out of those situations? Sometimes he leaves us there to help change those situations. Sometimes he leaves us there. and so, and. It's always to make it better. I mean, he never leaves us there just to sort of sit and suffer. That's not, that would be a masochistic God. Uh, he's always, we're there for a purpose, not, not, not for no reason at all. Um, 
And when we're there, we remember the New Testament and what Jesus did, right? We remember who he is. We remember what we hang our hopes on. Um, and that's an important thing in, in life. We have the same stumbling block problem that the Jews had in this area, that John had in this area. We doubt ourselves when, on our faith when we're suffering and we don't see an end to it. That's human nature. And Jesus speaks to that part of our human nature. Um, we have time to finish this week. All right, Isaiah 43 through 4, and then John 1 23. And John 1, 23. So I put this one in because in more than one prophecy, actually the last verse of the Old Testament contains such a prophecy, there was a prophecy that the prophet, now my mind, But that the, the, uh, the prophet would come before the Messiah came, okay? And that it would be an announcement of the coming of the Messiah. And one of the questions, by the way, believers asked John was, are you the Elisha who is to come or is it another? Okay, because in the period after Jesus' death and resurrection, there actually were people who claimed John to be the Messiah. Uh, so that John proclaims, no, I'm just the announcer. I'm just the announcer. Uh, but when Jesus is asked, has, has Elisha come? He says in another verse, for those who have ears to hear, John came and he is the one who is to come. So he points back to John the Baptist as the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy regarding the, the return of Elisha before the Messiah comes. Now, this one, I think, has some importance to us because how do you suppose simplistic Jews read the prophets? Literally. Literally. Remember, the last we see of Elisha is there's a chariot of fire that's ascending into the sky with him on it. So, if in a simple-minded way, how would you expect this to happen? Just that way, right? A physical Elisha would come back. He would announce the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah as the, king, as the true son of David would come and he would reestablish the kingdom of Israel by a mighty force. And that would be a very simple and very logical interpretation of the Old Testament, would it not? Okay, so what this teaches us, I think, is not to be... And this is another principle, not to be overly concrete in the way we interpret Scripture. Uh, it's, it's a logical fallacy to expect everything to be overly literal because John comes, not Elisha, but John is the Elisha that is to come. Sometimes we have to pierce through Scripture to get to the truth. It would be nice if interpreting Scripture were always easy. I would love that, believe me, as a preacher. I'm sure Bob would love that. But in our daily lives, in seeking the true interpretation, sometimes we have to work at it. And sometimes we have to reject simple solutions. We have to reject simple, obvious, easy solutions that turn out to be wrong. So I think I'll tell you another story. When... Kathy and I were young. Uh, we had two children at the time. We decided we needed a dog. Well, I've never liked small dogs. 
because they yap all the time. But in Kathy's family, they always had Cairn Terriers, which are small dogs. So that we prayed for God's wisdom about a dog. And we ended up getting a dog we called Lily Langtree, which never was a dog more appropriately named in the history of the universe, who was a retriever, kind of halfway between a big dog and a little dog. And I was sure it was God's will until Lily ate my neighbor's pool cover, a $600 pool cover. At which point in time, Lily had to make a trip to a farm to live because she was unsuited for Houston city life. Um, we have to think carefully and logically about scripture. That was a stupid analogy, but it, 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 it plays in a lot of areas of life. We have to think seriously about what God is teaching us in scripture. Sometimes it is not obvious. Uh, sometimes what appears to us to be the wrong answer is in fact the right answer. Uh, and the, the effort made to apply scripture wisely is worth the effort made to apply scripture wisely. It really is. Uh, and in our daily lives, scripture will never fail us, but we can fail scripture, right? <laughs> right? Uh, we can simply fail to do the hard work needed to apply scripture to our circumstances. And so that's kind of where I want to leave us today. Yeah. You're more versed in Jewish Old Testament uh, thought process, and I never thought of it until today. Do you think one of the stumbling blocks for the Jews was that their vision of Messiah was that suddenly a 26 or a 28-year-old man would show up? And he was going to be just like David. He was going to be athletic, handsome. We're going to get to that next week. When it says he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, when they say that no one found him attractive, what do we know about David? When we first meet him, we're told he was young and he was handsome. He played the guitar. Girls loved him. He was a great soldier. He wrote music. Oh, like this man does. He, he was the person anyone would be attracted to. That's who they expected. And now they get this person that is anything but what they expected. I, I actually sometimes, lots of bad teaching about the second coming comes out, and it's all about us wanting the Messiah that would uh, appeal to a 20th century American to, come, to return to us. Now, one of my favorite things is, you know, remember when we had the second Gulf War? When we had the second Gulf War, they reissued a, a book of prophecy that proclaimed that Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist. And uh, somebody came to my office and said, do you think Saddam Hussein's the Antichrist? And I said, well, I think they better sell these books before the U.S. Army gets to <laughs> Saddam. Uh, it's our tendency to want to, in concrete ways, have scripture fulfilled in our time in the way we want to get it fulfilled. And it may be. I mean, tomorrow Jesus could return. But history tells us to be suspicious of those who proclaim it. Uh, because people thought, people thought Napoleon was the Antichrist, people thought Hitler was the Antichrist. If you remember back, people thought Kissinger was the Antichrist, people thought Nixon was the Antichrist, people thought Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist. There have been plenty of Antichrists out there. So far, none has made it. Uh, so we should be suspicious about, oh, once again, overly concretizing our interpretation of Scripture and falling into foolishness. So... Uh, yeah. I do remember Rosh Pina. Do you want to tell them? So. Well, it's just a beautiful city. And we've gone there for uh, meals because we stood here and looked down to the lake to the Sea of Galilee. And it's just gorgeous. Because our, our daughter in law is from there. That's what it means in English. It sits, how many of you have been to the Holy Land on one of the trips Bob has taken? Did you eat at St. Peter's um, restaurant right there on the Sea of Galilee where they always serve you the fish? Well, if you'd gone up the hill a little bit and been with the Jews, there's a five-star restaurant up on that hill. Uh, a really great restaurant. <laughs> and um, 
uh, that's where they think the Messiah is coming, which I kind of like the idea because it's going to be a lovely spot, believe me, to have the Messiah come. Um, so, uh, one last word. If you haven't got the booklet, this is next week's the sixth week, the last week, because we're not, we're, we don't meet uh, Holy Week, so we backed everything up so that we, we would be finished next week. You can download this online. I'm not sure I know how to, but I know that it's been put up online. So you can do the study online this week if you haven't done it. I don't think we have any more books. Tom's gone already, but I don't think we have any more books. Um, but uh, if you let us know, we'll try to find something for you. And if, if it's just one, you get to have my non-inspired notes. So I'll give you, I have two, so I'll give you mine, mine if you don't have one and you want to take one. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we go to church this morning, we thank you so much that you sent us the prophets that would foresee who you were, uh, would give us inklings of your glory, uh, would give us an idea of your gentleness and of your peacefulness, of your restoration of all of creation, uh, that the lame would walk and the blind would see and the mountains would be made low and the hills would be and the valleys would be raised up. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for these prophecies and help us to not just read them, but to internalize them so that they become a part of our lives, a part of the way we see the world, uh, that we might be your people in a powerful way in our own day and time. And as we approach Holy Week, Lord, we do pray that you would allow us to increasingly concentrate on the work you came to do your suffering and your death, without which we would not be here. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.